Africa Agenda is a podcast that features conversations with people working at the intersection of open data, open government, and sustainable development in Africa. Hi, so I'm talking to Irungo Hotan, Executive Director of Amnesty International Kenya. Um, and we were talking about the, the, you know, your experience getting in, involved in the, in the agenda, agenda in Africa um, and the Maputo Protocol and all the issues that, that have, have emerged and, and the, the progress that's been made in, in, in some respects, the, the global movement, Me Too, Time's Up. Um, but I, I'd, I'd like to go back just a little bit, okay, quite a little bit to the beginning. Um, and there's some, uh, quite a number of issues that, that you've mentioned, um, female genital mutilation, right. um, uh, gender-based violence of, of, other, of, other, of other types, this, the case of Nuria in Sudan. Uh, what were the hardest issues at the beginning uh, to get countries to adopt and ratify uh, the, the Maputo Protocol? So I think there were four that were stated and four that the uh, lobbyists and the activists had to transform in order for countries to go ahead and sign uh, to the, sign up to the protocol and then more importantly to implement its provisions. Uh, the first relates to, I guess, sexual and reproductive health rights issues. So this is the right to safe abortion, the right to, um, uh, you know, the right to sexual education in schools. That's the first group. The second group relates to, I guess, what you'd call cultural practices. Mm -hmm. And of course, everything is culture. Yeah. But um, the way that you know governments would respond to us, is they said there are some things that are a little bit sensitive. You know, like mm -hmm. for example, the family unit, um, and we don't want a protocol that um, outlaws polygamy, for example. We don't want a protocol that um, uh, interferes with um, marriage practices, even early childhood, uh, early child marriages, uh, or child marriages. I think is is the simpler phrase. So child marriages, we don't want to interfere with that because we've been doing this for centuries. Yeah. Um, the third area was, um, I guess, related to, this one was not so pronounced in the conversations, but actually I think is one of the more uh, important ones um, today, which is the idea of alternative sexuality uh, or the right to choose your sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, so if I think back to 2003, we didn't have debates about um, lesbians. We didn't have debates about transgender or intersex or uh, LGBTIQ mm. communities. But I know now that is a a, a debate um, that is raging across the continent and in some ways the homophobia that we see on the continent is not able to distinguish in some cases what are heterosexual uh, women rights issues and what are um, sexual preference issues. Yeah. Um, the fourth one, uh, maybe uh, to raise again, which is probably not that well argued, but uh, you and I probably would take it as important, um, is the issue of masculinity, mm -hmm. right? Um, it was a, an assumption in the protocol that uh, by addressing women's rights issues, um, we would uh, create gender equality and justice in our societies. What we perhaps didn't pay much attention to um, uh, is the issue of masculinity. Um, and I don't see this as crudely as what about the boy? Boy child, mm -hmm. right? Because that's you know the kind of yeah. way people go. What about the boy that's child? A that's a default. Uh, <laughs> no, what we're looking at yeah. essentially is large numbers of young, um, you know, boys and young men who are growing up without the with the, without role models mm -hmm. um, of positive, respectful, um, and uh, generous, empowering uh, male figures, um, and that is also of concern. 
Um, the negative masculinity that we do see is, you know, bravado, arrogance, righteousness, um, overpowering, domineering men mm. who, um, you know, sleep around at will and disrespect women in their spaces. And I think that's the fourth area that uh, perhaps was an oversight back in um, 2003, which now is, of course, a big a issue. Big issue. Um, have we have we made progress in, in, in regard to some of those things that were big issues back then? Um, I, I know we've made progress in terms of the, the movement of the protocol. Right. Um, we've, we've, we've gone from a handful of countries at the beginning to 40, I think, yeah. now. Um, meaning we're left with just a small number of countries that need to overcome yeah. uh, their, their discomfort. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's, the protocol is a great story in some yeah. ways. So, you know, go back to 2003. Mm -hmm. um, the four organizations and the four individuals were at the AU. And uh, I think a year after the protocol had passed, only one country had uh, ratified the protocol. And that country was the Comoros. And at, at this point, um, we, we talk about a, a protocol going into force? Oh no, we haven't even and got into force. So how so many? 25 countries yeah. are required for a protocol to go into force, okay. right? So for it to have any legal legs, any legal power. Yeah. Um, and at that point, there's just one? Just one, one year afterwards. Yeah. So we went to the AU summit and I remember asking one of the ambassadors, typically, how long does it take for a convention or a charter or a protocol to come into force? And they said, well, you know, it could take even 15 or 20 years. We still have OAU resolutions and OAU charters that have not had enough signatures and ratifications for it to come into force. So we began to panic. Imagine that uh, that two generations would go by Bye. before the proto becomes a real uh, force uh, for change. Mm. So we that's how we framed the campaign. Now, we reached out to the Comoros ambassador. We said, you know, why did you ratify uh, the protocol? He said, to be honest, we received 15 uh, instruments. Um, and uh, I told my minister, just ratify all of them. Know. We didn't know what was in the protocol. We didn't know what was in the convention. We didn't. We just ratified all of them as a good Pan-African, uh, you know, foreign policy. So the next two years, we spent targeting specific countries to start the process of um, ratifications. Now the protocol um, came into force two years later. It was the fastest ratified instrument in the history of the Organization of African uh, Unity and, and the African the Union. Right? And why it happened, and we have this on record from uh, Winnie Bianima, who um, was then the gender director, was because of the domestic pressure that we, as, a, as the Solidarity for African Women's Rights Coalition, had generated in several countries. And the naming and shaming that we did repeatedly over three, I think it was two, uh, sorry, over four uh, AU summits, mm -hmm. um, where we actually went and red carded countries that had neither signed nor ratified the process, uh, the, the instrument. And we gave yellow cards to those that had signed and we gave green cards to those that had signed and ratified so we actually made it cool to be um, to ratify the protocol um, and it came into force um, and I think that momentum has continued so I think one of the things that I'm present to is the power of civic action um, with reformers in the African Union and within African governments mm -hmm. and the potential that has to move things much faster than we had seen in the past yeah. and it's uh, no, just, just hearing that makes me wonder what what other what other protocols could benefit from uh, from from that approach yeah. um, I, mean, I mean all the protocols and conventions yeah. should have domestic 
domestic civic uh, movements underneath them. Okay. Otherwise, they will neither not get ratified, or when they're ratified, they'll be promptly forgotten. Which is probably the case with quite a few. Yeah, some of those are dead. Uh, is, dead, dead uh, we've, I mean, this is mostly, I think, due to the protocol, mm -hmm. the progress we've seen in bringing, um, in, in efforts to bring child marriage to an end, right. um, in ending female genital mutilation. Right. Um, among among all these issues, which ones do you, in your view, you know, from where you you, you sit, um, have moved the farthest? So I think I think um, if you looked at um, and there are various data sets out there um, and institutions that are looking at this across the continent. I mean, I think the ones where we've had um, quite a lot of success is in political representation of women. Um, the concept of women as state officials or as elected or appointed officials is fairly much, fairly much uh, you know, understood across the continent now. Uh, we may not have gone very far in terms of the numbers, but um, it's no longer an, an issue. The second, I think, um, would relate to um, the right to universal health care and um, education. So going back to 2003, if you step back even two years to 2001, um, it was almost considered to be a communist argument mm -hmm. to argue that there should be universal health care or universal education. Right? It sounded very socialist. It was very socialist, yes. you know, and uh, you know you had to have come from Moscow to, to suggest this. It was, you know, so I think I think that's now transformed. We have a development state in many of our countries. And and uh, we have now, you know, ministries that focus primarily on women, um, and also many that now have funds uh, specifically set up for affirmative action. So I think the, I guess, the other one would be affirmative action in terms of um, not just in terms of political representation, but also in terms of uh, resources uh, to women's groups and economic um, cooperatives. Right. Well. Um We'll, we'll take a, a short break, uh, but when we come back, uh, we'll talk a little bit about how we're working with the data and the evidence on these issues um, and how we're using it for our own work in advocacy and in moving this agenda forward. We'll be back.